Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For decades, Walter Cronkite was known as the most trusted man in America. Millions across the nation welcomed him into their homes. Uh, first as a print reporter for United Press on the front lines of World War II, and later in the emerging medium of television, as a host of numerous documentary programs, and as anchor, of course, of the CBS Evening News from 1962 until his retirement in 1981. Cronkite was witness to, and the nation's voice for, many of the nation's most profound moments, including the Kennedy assassination, Apollos 11 and 13, Watergate, Vietnam War, and Iran hostage crisis. Historian Douglas Brinkley's new biography is titled simply Cronkite. Uh, Douglas Brinkley is a professor of history at Rice University, contributing editor to Vanity Fair. He's author of uh, several books. Douglas Brinkley, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. We appreciate you uh, taking the time. I'd like to jump right in uh, with uh, Cronkite's retirement uh, speech. This is the end of his final broadcast in March of 1981. Uh, this is uh, sort of where you start uh, the book in your prologue, and it brings up uh, some issues of, of legacy. Here's Walter Cronkite. This is my last broadcast as the anchorman of the CBS Evening News. For me, it's a moment for which I long have planned, but which nevertheless comes with some sadness. For almost two decades, after all, we've been meeting like this in the evenings, and I'll miss that. But those who have made anything of this departure, I'm afraid, have made too much. This is but a transition, a passing of the baton. A great broadcaster and gentleman, Doug Edwards, preceded me in this job, and another, Dan Rather, will follow. And anyway, the person who sits here is but the most conspicuous member of a superb team of journalists, writers, reporters, editors, producers, and none of that will change. Furthermore, I'm not even going away. I'll be back from time to time with special news reports and documentaries, and beginning in June, every week, with our science program, Universe. Old anchormen, you see, don't fade away. They just keep coming back for more. And that's the way it is. Friday, March 6th, 1981. I'll be away on assignment, and Dan Rather will be sitting in here for the next few years. Good night. And Dan Rather indeed did sit in there for a few years. Uh, that brings up several issues. Uh, Walter Cronkite, I believe you write, uh, Douglas Brinkley, really did not see himself in, in the mold of Anchorman as star, which which uh, many others did and do. That really was him. I don't think he was being, uh, you know, self-deprecating there. Well, no. Look, Walter Cronkite um, represents, and why I wrote the book, um, a different breed of, of broadcaster. I mean, he was there for the birth of TV news in the 1950s and lasted all the way to that clip you heard in 81. He became the most trusted man in America, as the cliche went, um, because he just believed in the five W's of journalism, who, what, where, when, and why. He didn't believe in having um, um, reporting anything on the air that wasn't triple fact. Sometimes in journalism schools, they tell you to have two sources. Cronkite liked to have three. And that's really how he had such a long, long career. He didn't make many mistakes on the air. And any time today I watch CNN or Fox or MSNBC or one of the cable news outfits rush to make an announcement when we have a tragedy and then later have to retract it, you clearly realize they haven't learned from the Walter Cronkite school um, because you do great damage when you misreport things, and it's the number one role of a journalist is to get it right, and Cronkite lived by that. And he was also a tradesman. He was somebody from childhood, loved, he was started in print 
broadcasting. Um, he worked for the wire services. He worked radio and then TV. And he didn't do it for the money. He had a trade that he loved. Now, when he quit on the clip you just ran, um, that was uh, he was making about I was seven hundred thousand a year at that point. Now Barbara Walters had just been hired and was now the million dollar woman. She for ABC was making a million, and and right after Cronkite's departure, he started seeing all of these exorbitant salaries going for these TV celebrities. And 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 one part of us says, well, good for you know Barbara Walters or, or Katie Couric or. You know, Peter Jennings said they could bag $10 million a year, $14 million in some cases. Problem is, they're getting that money by cutting foreign bureaus of news, shutting down bureaus in Tokyo or Rio or, or um, you know, Saigon. And so it's had a, a really a negative effect, this celebrity anchor world we live in today. You write in your prologue, you quote Kurt Vonnegut, upon that retirement in 1981, he, he said that he worried the era of thoughtfulness in news broadcasting was over. Do you, do you think that he was prescient there? Well, remember, um, I mean, Vonnegut is, I think, correct in this regard. I mean, by 81, when Cronkite stepped down, the, it was the birth of cable TV, almost coincided with it, and then the explosion of the Internet. And very few of us now get our news, for better or worse, by coming home and watching Walter Cronkite for a half an hour. Um, much of the Cronkite's time as um, the head of CBS, he was, some places in America only got CBS news. And so the, he, his, his role, Cronkite, was to be kind of a judge of what was news and wasn't, uh, a kind of um, a fair and balanced voice in the very real sense of that term. Um, and that, that left, by the 80s, we were in a whole new era of broadcasting and, and news gathering. Of course, uh, you mentioned part of the why he became, you know, the most trusted man in America, and and sort of the, this patriarchal figure at, at moments of national tragedy. One one factor was that there was just so many were tuning in; it wasn't fragmented like it is today. But what what about him? Do you think you've talked about he 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 was trusted because he checked his facts double and triple? What else about him? Well, look, he was born in the Midwest, and he always kept his. Um wristwatch on Kansas City time, uh, even though he lived in Manhattan and um, Martha's Vineyard, he was a heartland reporter, and he had the style and demeanor that um, um, Americans liked. You know, when, when you go buy a movie ticket, we could go see a Tom Cruise movie, for example, and you could either like it or not like it, but you don't have to go watch Tom Cruise for another year. Uh, but with Cronkite, he was coming into your living room every, every night uh, or into your bedroom even, the most intimate private spaces we have. And so he had to wear well um, to, for, to day after day. And whenever he had a big event, he'd be on these marathon sessions for, you know, 10-hour sprints at a time. And so he, something about him didn't rub people the wrong way. I had a hard time. Uh, it was a dilemma for a biographer finding people that knew Walter Cronkite that didn't like him. Dan Rather said to me, uh, in, a, in criticism of Cronkite, Walter would talk to a potted plant. <laughs> um, and I think Dan is correct. Um, mm. Walter would talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime. If you came up to him, he'd say, where are you from? And he'd start talking to that person about their lives because he thought somewhere there would be knowledge about what's going on in a labor union or what's happening at a fast food 
chain store. And so he treated every person he met as a friend and a source. Hmm. We're going to be talking a little bit. You, you did find some warts, I, I do believe, in, in, in the book. But uh, you're saying it was, it, was hard. <laughs> it was hard digging for those. He really was a likable person. He was. I mean, the warts are his, his frugality. He grew up very poor in the Great Depression. Uh, his father was a dentist but abandoned him, and so he was raised as the only child by his mother in Houston, Texas. And um, he was always very tight, as some people of that generation were, because Walter never knew where his next bit of money was going to come from. But that, that bleeded into his later life, where he was very, always tried to not pick up the tab, uh, was, you know, chintzy on his tips with taxi drivers and doormen and the like. Um, and then he, you know, I don't know whether it's a, a, a wart, but he had a great love of strip clubs, and he would constantly go to uh, whenever he would travel into the burlesque uh, theaters, um, you know, or at least the Tenderloin districts of towns and things. His wife, many years, Betsy, knew he did that, uh, but it was a, a hobby to him, and as some people find that as a, as a shows a fun-loving side of him, but some people find it a little perverse. Hmm. And uh, believe he could be somewhat ruthless when it came to preserving his position. Oh, terribly ruthless. But look, I write biography for a living. I mean, and anybody who makes it to the top of the mountain has a side of ruthlessness to them. You can't stay number one in any field without being tough and making sure that you're controlling the oxygen around you. Um, And the big thing in TV was airtime. Often people wouldn't recognize him when he was young, uh, except, oh, you're on TV a lot. The main thing was is to get FaceTime. So once Walter earned the anchor spot, and he earned it largely by covering NASA, and, and particularly the John Glenn triple orbit, um, he, he did a brilliant marathon broadcast job of it to the point that when astronaut Glenn splashed down, the media rushed to John Glenn's mother and said, oh my gosh, you must be so excited to reunite with your son. And Mrs. Glenn said, well, yes, but I'm really excited to meet Walter Cronkite. <laughs> Uh, he had become uh, a fixture and a, almost an icon by 62 when he took on the anchor role. And he never won. He had some close calls where he was uh, William Paley, the owner of CBS, was going to take him off of that spot. But Cronkite always found a way to make sure he, he didn't lose his, his preeminent job. Then at a certain point, we'll get into this later in the hour, uh, he had arrived at such power um, though there's some courage involved, that, that he could actually, you know, change the entire nation's opinion, Vietnam and, and the like. We'll get into talking a bit about that. I, I, I found it uh, fun to read that his wife, Betsy, when asked, why do you think your husband holds this position? How, why so likable? She uh, surmised that perhaps it's because he looks like everybody's dentist. Well, that's right. And he, she made that quip because he came from a family of dentists. It wasn't just his father but his grandfather and great-grandfather. And uh, he had an easy demeanor about him. Uh, he was approachable. Um, and that was, that was very important. But, you know, he, he only become beloved and trusted in news by years of people recognizing your, 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 they, can, they can count on you. And in that regard, Cronkite never let anybody down. He never misled the public. He took his job as broadcaster to be almost sacred. And uh, if anything, he was just very sad in the end of his life that entertainment had become news, that 
what's going on with Lindsay Lohan or, um, you know, Angelina Jolie was suddenly warranted the same amount of attention as what's happening in Syria or Afghanistan. Uh, and, uh, and he thought that that was going to be the end of real news. And once we bled, we, we would become a tabloid entertainment news culture uh, to, the, to the despair of America. Now, PBS and National Public Radio were great oases for Cronkite. Um, he loved them, and he, they both, you know, the television and radio side of National Public Broadcasting treated Cronkite as um, an extended member of their family. He would do all sorts of programming for both once he left CBS in 81. Yeah, I, I well remember his, his reports for NPR. Um, yes, he loved NPR. He listened to it all day long, and that's what he thought news should be. Um, so we, we don't want to say that doesn't exist what Cronkite's talking about anymore, but there's been a real incursion by entertainment as news uh, uh, that seeped into our culture, and I'm not sure how one gets away from it. Cronkite's solution in his later years, and he lived to be over 90 years old, um, was that we needed a class for middle school age kids uh, where you, instead of taking a journalism class, you took an internet literacy class. And before you handed a laptop or an iPhone over to a child, you needed to teach them how to, to find accurate sites and how to use it. Otherwise, you'll be get, they'll, they'll be turning into, you know, um, pornographic sites or violence-prone sites or just, um, you know, bogus fake news places. And, uh, and his concern was we've opened up the wild west of the Internet, but we haven't given an instruction manual to young people on how to use it. Hmm. That's interesting. He did live to 2009, so he would have seen most of this. Um, it, and I'm sure he was concerned about the balkanization of, of, of news outlets and, and the 24-hour news cycle. Did he see any positives from, from those developments? Not really. He thought at first with CNN when his friend Bernard Shaw was there and Peter Arnett um, that that CNN was the great hope that 24/7 news could be a good thing as long as they stayed to real news. And as if some of your listeners might recall, early CNN did just that. But quickly, that entertainment culture grabbed the hold of it, and uh, you turn on CNN um, tonight, and it could be in you know an interview with uh, you know some uh, Hollywood star getting equal time with uh, in what's going on, uh, and, and you get much. He felt CNN continued to do a good job on international crises when they poured their resources into it, but on its American programming, it had, um, it had, it had become uh, a joke. We're talking with Douglas Brinkley. He's historian, professor of history at Rice University, author of several books, the latest of which is titled Cronkite, a biography of Walter Cronkite, the great newsman. More with Douglas Brinkley following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering plattered cookies and brownies, sandwiches, and boxed lunches. Information at crumbbrothers.com. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto Casper. This week, it's a conversation with the irrepressible David Sedaris, the king of making the most of embarrassing situations, like the family dinner, which his dad eats in his underpants. Be sure to join us. That's this week on The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is historian Douglas Brinkley. His latest biography is Cronkite. Profiling the life and career of the great newsman Walter Cronkite, he was, of course, known as the most trusted man in America. And uh, he became the nation's voice for, sort of a patriarchal figure during many of the most profound moments in modern American history, including Kennedy assassination, uh, many events in the space program, Watergate, Vietnam War, and uh, so forth. I want to maybe take back uh, to the early years of Cronkite, born and raised in Texas, right? And he got... uh, well, born in, he was born in um, St. Joseph, um, Missouri, and lived early years in Kansas City, and then moved to Houston and graduated from high school in Houston, and then went to Austin to do two years at University of Texas. But he dropped out after two years. Um, he did do, write a lot of articles for two years for the Daily Texan paper, including a long interview with Gertrude Stein that was quite interesting to read. Hmm. But... Um, he started doing uh, horse racing work with that great voice of his. You know, there they go around the bend. <laughs> it's almost like a perfect uh, voice for that kind of um, theater. And he um, would work illegal bookie joints and made money young. And then he got hired by what was known as the INS, International News Service, a wire service. And he started his serious journalism career with that and ended up becoming for many years the one of the principal writers for the United Press, or UPI. And uh, just backing up briefly to his first radio job, KCMO, he got fired from that job. Why? It's an interesting story. He went back up to see his father in Kansas City, and he suddenly got a job in broadcasting. And, and you know, Cronkite always wanted, his, his dream was to be like Lowell Thomas, who would go get to interview Mahatma Gandhi or Lawrence of Arabia, um, not necessarily Edward R. Murrow. He wanted to be a little more avuncular than Murrow, uh, like Lowell Thomas was. But at any rate, he got hired at KCMO, and um, one afternoon his his boss busted into the anchor booth and said, look, get on after the commercial break. City Hall is on fire and five people have died. And Cronkite said, well, what's your so- where, where, what are your sources? And he said, my wife just called and told me. And Cronkite said, well, no, no, do offense, sir, but a wife is not, a phone call is not a source. Did she see it? And he said, no. They had a little bit of an argument, and the upshot was Cronkite said, I'll race down there and do some, some uh, gumshoe reporting and then come back, and we'll have most the, all the more facts than the competition on radio. The boss fired him on the spot, took to the mic himself, announced the five dead. Well, it turned out Cronkite got fired for telling the truth because nobody had died, but he had lost his job nevertheless, and it left him in a very depressed mood, um, being fired for wanting to be accurate on radio. Hmm. That, w- that would be a blow. But, but he, this solidified him in that desire, and he, he learned a lot at Uni- United Press, right? He reported the war, along with some other brilliant reporters. I want you to tell us a little bit about those war years. Well, he wanted to go when the, you know, the drumbeat of war was coming in the late 30s, Cronkite went with his wife, Betsy, to get their aviation license. He wanted to be a pilot for Army Air Corps during the war, but it turned out he was colorblind, and he shifted his ambition to being a foreign correspondent. And um, he ended up um, going and doing a great job for United Press. He went to North Africa um, for Operation Torch. He dealt in the Atlantic with um, some of our our cargo ships being... um, torpedoed by the Germans, 
And then he became an embedded reporter for the 8th Air Force, known as the Mighty 8th. If any of your listeners ever get a chance to go to Savannah, Georgia, one of America's beautiful cities, there's a great museum about the 8th Air Force history there. But Cronkite became the Ernie Pyle uh, of, the, of the pilots, the bomber boys, and wrote, uh, he was on missions, uh, over bombing missions over Germany, almost died. He, um, he befriended Andy Rooney, who was writing for Stars and Stripes, and Bob Post of the New York Times, who got killed. Um, and Cronkite's stories became front-page news around America, usually very propagandistic about how our uh, great bomber boys are giving Hitler hell. And uh, when he came back, uh, this is Bob Schieffer's quote, um, when he made it on the air, everybody knew Walter didn't get his suntan in the studio lights. He had credibility instantly, didn't he? That was it. And he was, I can't exaggerate how beloved Cronkite became with the pilots. Uh, He became like one of them. And he was always like cocktails and drinking, so he'd go to the pub, and uh, he became their scribe. And many of those guys became major CEOs in aviation companies, or some of them stayed in the military and worked for NASA. But he really had earned his credentials as a wartime correspondent. In fact, after World War II, um, he was there for the liberation of Amsterdam and Rotterdam, but Cronkite then opened up all over Europe the United Press Bureau offices. He opened one in, in Rotterdam, Antwerp, Luxembourg City, Brussels. He then became the chief reporter for the Nuremberg trials for the United Press and then moved to Moscow and became the head of the Moscow Bureau right at the beginning of the Cold War and in, um, in, during the worst parts of early Stalin Cold War, 46, 47, 48. And, um, and so by the time he got back to America and was on television, he was already a very well-respected print um, journalist. And he made the transition. He hoped to make the transition to radio, but instead he got the, the lousiest job at CBS, which was TV in 1950. And he took that new, brand newfangled media form and rose, and, and rose as television rose. So he would have... He would have thought of this as a, kind of a bad thing at the, the outset. It turned out to be a good thing. It was an awful thing for him. I probably don't have time on him. Uh, certainly I'll have time at Sundance to, to mention this. But, um, you know, he, didn't, he had a feud with, with Edward R. Murrow because Murrow had hired him in World War II. Uh, he was going to quit UP and instead um, work for CBS. But Cronkite reneged on the offer. It's a longer story, but the, the nut of it is by the time... Um, the Korean War started, Cronkite got hired by CBS and wanted to be a Murrow boy in Korea, meaning a a, a correspondent in the war zone, and instead um, he got nixed from that and got stuck in Washington, D.C. at WTOP, a little tiny shoebox television studio which only had about 4,000 viewers on a good day. And there was a lot of feeling that TV was just a toy, that it would never be become a mass-produced. And so in 50, Cronkite was depressed. He hadn't made it with the A-team of the Murrow Boys on radio, but instead he assiduously worked his way on TV. And by 52, they covered the convention CBS with cameras, gavel to gavel. And that's really where Cronkite started mastering this free form of talking 
hours on end without making a mistake, uh, you know, a, a tightrope walk without a net that he became the master of. And he purposely, I think you're right, slowed down his speech for, for a television medium. He did. He would train himself to, and I think it, you asked earlier reasons for his success. I think that's one of them. He had that staccato-like voice, but he slowed it down and got rid of unnecessary adverbs and adjectives and spoke with a great clarity about what was going on. And uh, he wasn't trying to cram a lot in. Um, I tend to speak with cramming in. I know all these facts, and I want to get them out. Uh, but Cronkite became like a muddy old river, you know? You just you kind of flowed with his voice, and it would sink in a little better. He was unique for that style of broadcasting. Since then, all sorts of people have, have uh, imitated him, but uh, he pioneered in that non-rushed voice. Remember, Morrow from London in World War II would be, you know, the sirens are going on, and, you know, put all that drama into it. Well, Cronkite did a 180, uh, let's slow the show down. And I suppose that helped in, in what you call the, you know, wearing well with the public. If you're going to be on the air for hours and hours on end, it probably helps. That's right. And things that this became a theatrical production, like when you watch, let's just say, a, a Mercury or Apollo mission. He covered all of them for Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. You would want to, you know, you would say, oh, golly. You know, he would say something like, oh, golly, there she goes. And then he'd leave long pauses. Unbelievable. There it go. Let's hope for the best. And then there'd be a long pause. Well, if you could watch a clip on NBC, they were talking, you know, this is the, this, this big, the rocket, and it's that big, and this, and then all these factoids. And yet the Cronkite broadcast had more grace to it because it wasn't about him. There, there was a power to moments of silence that he learned um, how to master. And so he got very, people just started to, turning into his special um, programs um, more and more because they somehow it it became he made it into a better drama by offering um, by a minimal approach. We're talking with uh, historian Douglas Brinkley on the program today. Uh, his new biography is titled Cronkite. Of course, we're talking about the great newsman Walter Cronkite. We have Cronkite's first broadcast for the uh, CBS uh, Evening News. Uh, here's just a portion of that. Good evening from our CBS newsroom in New York on this, the first broadcast of network television's first daily half-hour news program. In Alabama today, Governor Wallace ringed a public school with state troops to delay integration ordered by a federal court, and in turn, the local Alabama school board threatened defiance of the governor. At his summer White House in Hyannisport on Massachusetts Cape Cod, President Kennedy today talked with this reporter of many things, including the political repercussions of the integration battle. How seriously do you think this civil rights situation is going to affect your chances, assuming you'll be the nominee of the Democratic Party next year, in 1964? Well, obviously it's going to be a uh, important matter. It's caused a good deal of feeling, I suppose, against the administration in the South. Walter Cronkite, early in his career, on at least uh, with, the, with that show, went on for some 20 years. Uh, I believe he interviewed Doug Sprinkley's Some Eight Presidents, was uh, reported on, on Some Eight Presidents. Well, let me get to the personal Walter Cronkite. Um, yes, about the presidents, but um, he was a New Deal liberal. Uh, he was a great lover of Franklin Roosevelt. 
um, and loved politics. He went to all the political conventions from 1928 when he was a boy, and he went to both the uh, Democratic Convention in Houston and the Republican Convention in Kansas City in 1928. And he went to all of them right up until the time of his death. He was a, a political junkie. But he believed fully in um, integration. He was a real equal rights person. And it was because of Cronkite that when nightly news went from 15 to 30 minutes, that they would start covering Martin Luther King regularly in the last half of their half an hour to the fact that all over the South, CBS became known as the colored broadcasting system. And King himself and, and others of the movement knew to not even do events until you let CBS know to have cameras there. So the role Cronkite plays in the, the freedom movement of the 60s has is, is, is been underappreciated and it is very, very large. Um, and you mentioned earlier Watergate. Um, similar. I, I recently watched Robert Redford, who, who's been the impresario of Sundance. On a, I watched him on a Discovery documentary, which is, just was fantastic, on uh, Woodward and Bernstein and Watergate. Uh, another unsung hero in all that was Walter Cronkite, because when Watergate was back page news in the Washington Post, Cronkite ended up doing 17 out of a 30-minute news broadcast on it when nobody else nationally would touch it. And then in the, and Nixon went nuts on Cronkite, and then they did another long one on the nightly news. And so by the time Nixon got reelected, winning in 1972, they had a get Cronkite movement. They were going to destroy Walter Cronkite for what he did with Watergate. And you can listen to this attempt by Nixon and Chuck Colson and Pat Buchanan to get Cronkite. For my book, after I listened to the Nixon tapes, I was able to interview Colson and Buchanan, and uh, they explained just how determined they believed if you could rip Cronkite down, you'd rip the kingpin of the so-called liberal media elite down, and, uh, and it would teach a lesson to everybody else. This And this was, uh, Cronkite was more formidable, wasn't he, than a couple of reporters at the Washington Post, right? That when, when he, well, when that, he weighed in. suggesting. Yeah. He, this was now, once, it, once Watergate and everybody said, oh my gosh, Cronkite gave the whole broadcast to it, it was no longer a fringe story anymore. It became now, everybody was covering Watergate. Cronkite said it was okay to make it the big news story. And that's the kind of pow power he had. And let's be clear about it. Nixon tried to get Cronkite and, and the media got Cronkite, in, I mean, got Nixon in the end, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Cronkite outlived Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew and the whole gang. Uh, um, in fact, his stature only grew Cronkite because of Watergate. It didn't shrink an iota. Uh, speaking of the kind of this line of uh, thinking, I want to play a portion from his report on Vietnam and talk a bit about what Cronkite did there. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe, in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. On the off chance that military and political analysts are right, in the next few months, we must test the enemy's intentions in case this is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this report 
that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. That's a famous report on, on Vietnam. What was the effect of, of this? Well, it's called the Cronkite moment, and it, it's, it's, it's both huge in history, and it has a growing folklore about it. Um, it was crucial because Cronkite had gone to Vietnam in 1965, and um, there's a Bob Dylan line. Dylan says, they only let me see what they wanted me to see. Uh, well, on that tour, they only let Cronkite, the military let Cronkite see what they wanted him to see. So he saw all the new shiny planes and guns. And So Cronkite left in 65 thinking maybe that, um, like the Korean War, Vietnam was, uh, may have been a right thing to do. Well, my book documents his souring on Vietnam in 66 and 67, but by 68 he had had it, and uh, particularly the Tet Offensive, um, and when, when the North Vietnamese were able to wreak havoc in South Vietnam and Viet Cong seemed stronger than ever. Cronkite flew to Vietnam. I, I've studied all of his notebooks that he kept while he was over there. He traveled far and wide. And he came back with the conclusion that McNamara and Johnson had been lying to the American people, that the Pentagon was, was, been, it was lying, and that really Vietnam was unwinnable, and hence the report you just played where he's calling it a stalemate, and that very soon we might just have to um, bring the troops home. This had a cataclysmic effect because this wasn't um, Abby Hoffman or Jerry Rubin, right? I mean, this was, you know, Uncle Walter the center, centrist reporter who tries to just give the news. And uh, again, if Cronkite saying this, it, it, it was like, you know, God saying it. Um, you, it meant the Vietnam War was going to be over soon. We had to get out. And only a couple weeks after that Cronkite report, Lyndon Johnson dropped out from running for re-election in 68. And, um, but as we all know, the war went on much longer, and, and CBS became a critic of the war, so much so that General Westmoreland later famously sued CBS for libel, and uh, they became despised by Nixon's foreign policy team, CBS, for constantly showing uh, atrocities in Vietnam that our troops were committed, committing. Mm. I want to follow up on, on this, this idea of Uncle Walter and, and being a centrist reporter. Um, and we'll get into uh, talking about his, uh, he had a fascination with the space program, and that's uh, sort of what brought him to, to prominence. We'll, we'll talk about that. Here's some of the audio from the moon landing. Also, the, the famous uh, JFK assassination moment where, where it's just, I think, the quintessential illustration of Walter Cronkite as this patriarchal figure in National Morning. More with Douglas Brinkley, author of Cronkite, following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and university catering, exceeding expectations, every event, every time, proudly serving the USU campus community. This is Bill McLaughlin inviting you to come exploring with me. We're going to go treasure hunting in the Lincoln Center Library. We're hoping to find wonderful music that's just been lying unheard on those shelves for way too long. We're going to take that stuff out into the sunshine tuneful, romantic, creative music. That's American Masters, this week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, spending the hour with historian Douglas Brinkley. He's professor of history at DeRice University, author of uh, several books, most recent of which is a biography of Walter Cronkite. Douglas Brinkley, you made reference to this, uh, that he had such power on Vietnam War and other issues because he was seen as centrist, um, this Uncle Walter image, and yet privately, at least, uh, he was had a definite liberal bias. And I, I think you're right. Uh, he was surprised that uh, more of that uh, wasn't talked about. And uh, so how, how do how do those two things coexist? Well, it's a large theme in my book. I mean, how does one who private has private views have to keep them quiet while you're delivering the news to show not tip your hand? Um, many people do. No, no, surgeon is might be a hard right person or hard left you do surgery you do your surgery politics don't figure Uh, Cronkite really tried to adhere to that but he couldn't handle it anymore with Vietnam it just started driving him crazy and the first signs of it were on his radio he used to do a little radio show even when he was CBS anchorman on TV at around lunchtime giving kind of headline news and sometimes he'd sneak in commentary that was you know talking about the failures in Vietnam and nobody picked up on it like they would today um, a few people carped about it but it didn't track as a big story and he always thought he was going to get busted for being anti-Vietnam War on radio but everybody just focused on the nightly news broadcast but it was a bit of a dance for him, and in a way, Vietnam liberated him. I think once he he was able to say, "Look, I'm basically I'm I'm taking the dub side of this." Um, there was a huge fear at CBS. Oh, we're going to lose advertisers, and many of the CBS affiliates were owned by conservatives, and some of them were worried. But Walter had such charm; he would go fly and meet a conservative CBS owner of a you know affiliate in Phoenix or you know, um, Las Vegas or whatever, and he'd have lunch with them, with the, the conservative CBS affiliate owner, and by the end of a lunch, Walter had charmed them, and, um, and they weren't angry or calling for his head anymore. So the irony of all of this is he started winning all of his awards after his descent on Vietnam, and uh, he then became the voice of the environmental movement. And I can't tell you how big the environment becomes for Cronkite. He, when he got out of all the space um, Apollo and all is the photographs not of the moon but of lonely fragile earth blue green planet floating out in this universe and it became a religious feeling to Cronkite he would keep it behind him in his office at his home and it even became the bumper slide of CBS astronaut Bill Anders famous photograph called Earthrise which showed earth from a moon perspective and um, he then, Cronkite, in around early 70s, started saying, we're going to make 1970 the year of the environment. They covered, is the planet in peril every night? It showed pollution and dead rivers. And then he sent crews out to cover the first Earth Day in 1970, as if it were as major news. And I've interviewed a lot of the founders of Earth Day and early organizers, and it was CBS treating this as a moon launch, practically, Earth Day, that made it so big, and it forced Nixon's hand by the end of 70 to create the Environmental Protection Agency. But it, it seems like perhaps conservatives, I don't know, filtered something out, um, because after he felt liberated, uh, even on the television broadcast, some, as you've just been saying, some of this uh, liberal bias showed. Yet Roger Ailes says very complimentary things about him. Ronald Reagan was a fan. 
Well, look, you used the term filtered out. Yeah, I mean, some of the right, Nixon was going after him, and some of the right said this is a liberal, CBS is liberalism. It's Kennedy, Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, George McGovern, liberalism, New York, Manhattan folks. And really the birth of Fox News comes out of despair on the right about network news and, and, and largely CBS, um, but, but NBC also. Um, and, you know, so there is a cause and effect there. There is a cost for Cronkite's liberalism. The right re, re, rejects it. They didn't reject Cronkite um, because Walter liked people, and he was a great joke teller, storyteller. Reagan really liked Cronkite personally. George Herbert Walker Bush did. John Lehman, Reagan's Secretary of Navy, was one of his best friends. Um, he used to be a member of the Bohemian Club in California, which was had many conservatives in his camp, but William Buckley was his great sailing companion. And on the other hand, Cronkite's closest younger friend was Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead. They used to spend all their Thanksgiving together, and Cronkite was an honorary member of the Dead. He even played drums with them. And Jimmy Buffett was one of his closest friends. So Walter treated friendship different than politics, and we don't do that in America right now. But he didn't dislike somebody because they were on the right or, they, you know, he wasn't looking to have friends that only reflected his worldview. We do have a caller, uh, Georgia, in Cedar City, Georgia. Glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, thank you. I, I've been out watering my garden. I may, may have missed this comment, and if I repeat, I apologize. I experienced um, Mr. Conkite and Eric Severide as sort of the anchors of what I what that broad spectrum of what our values really should be. As you researched him and studied him, did he do it just because he was a media person, or was he someone really with kind of that core sense of what America ought to stand for and tried to reflect that as he, as he kept us up on what was going on in the world and what we were creating, destroying, or creating in the world? Well, a good question, and I hope your garden does well. Um, the, um, I, I mean, the main thing you were trying to do is what well, is Americanism, okay. <laughs> the best of American democracy. It's why prejudice just he couldn't handle it. He didn't, you know, if somebody said, look, what they did in the 60s, Walter Cronkite, your network is, is overplaying Martin Luther King and all, he would say nonsense. This is the big story. Racism, Jim Crow, segregation. And it's got to go. It's got to go because Brown versus Topeka and the law of the land says it's got to go. Um, in that regard, he was a pretty much a friend of the, the, um, of the movement in every sense of the word. He just believed that, uh, that we couldn't survive as a nation if we continued to keep bigger, bigotry. He was very much behind the women's movement, Equal Rights Amendment, pro-Roe versus Wade. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Walter Cronkite was, uh, he liked to think of himself as a New Deal liberal, but he was a man of the left. But um, he was also a man who wasn't a hater of people, so he didn't really make his own enemies list. He, he, he saw value in some of his libertarian and conservative friends uh, and was able to um, you know, distinguish between them all. But he had a vision of America living up to what it should be in, in a bigger vision. Uh, from seeing I mentioned Earth, he thought of this, that borders and state lines and all this were, were just man-made nonsense in the end. We're all humans, and it's a very fragile planet, and we've got to think in global terms, particularly on the environment. It doesn't do any good for you know, us to have the protection of birds, endangered species in the United States if the birds fly to 
to, you know, the Central America and they get gunned down, what good does our, our laws do? And the same with water pollution or air pollution. So he, he was a early global thinker, particularly on environmental things, but also on human rights. Thanks, Georgia, for the question. Thank appreciate you very that. much. I appreciate those comments. Yeah. I wonder, uh, I want to talk about a couple of the negatives, and you uh, you see you're hard-pressed, and it, it, it does seem like it, it really is true. Uh, this... This particular incident with Pan Am, um, he he arranged to, to to be able to have Pan Am fly him and his family uh, anywhere in the, in the world. Uh, this might have got you fired in today's day and age. Well, yes. What happened was he became great friends with the president of Pan Am, and suddenly they offered for James Minchner, the writer, and Art Bookwald and Cronkite to go to places like Haiti. To, to do ecotourism and to go to um, Thailand and, and other spots free of charge with the family. Now, this was a conflict of interest because Pan Am had back then had some business with the space program, uh, the meaning federal government contracts, and it, so you couldn't do it. And he got called out for it when it was found out, and he, he said, oh, I didn't think of it that way. It's just my, my good old-time friend from World War II at Pan Am uh, but he paid for it and got really taken to the woodshed at CBS. And uh, I, I think it's the darkest moment of his professional career. And what about the, the bugging of this committee room in, in a 1952 well, convention? Well, serious, too, probably more serious because it ultimately could have been criminal. Um, where you're getting a free flight's not criminal. It's unethical. Um, the bugging really occurred in 1952 where they were trying to get the contract to bring the Republican convention on television, and Eisenhower wanted it on TV because he was Ike, beloved, cheering, you know, he, he, you know good-looking. Um, he was telegenic in those ways, where Robert Taft was like a sour pickle. And the idea of Taft on TV, if, if that was a decision was going to be made by a TV audience, Ike would win. Um, and so the Taft people fought tooth and nail against it. Well, the Cronkite and CBS left a bug in a room to get their conversation and then basically threatened and blackmailed the Taft people to come public with the conversation if they didn't allow television to be uh, to cover the convention. Hmm. I want to, uh, we just have a few minutes left. I want to uh, at least get this in, end with this perhaps. Uh, this is tape I think we've all seen. We, of course, it's radio, so we've got the, the audio tape of this. This is the JFK assassination. And this is perhaps the genesis or the, the coalescing of Walter Cronkite as, as sort of our national patriarch in, in times like these. Let, let's hear this audio. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. And this is near the end of hours of coverage, and, uh, you know, we don't do know, we don't know. And then, and then finally the confirmation. In the middle there, you, you with the silence there, he gets choked up a little bit. Why did, All of the news outlets were reporting this, of course. Why, why did why did the nation start turning to Cronkite? 
Well, Cronkite broke into the soap opera as the day turns and started covering. We got a shooting in Dallas and did the blow-by-blow reporting leading up to the, the, that clip you just played. But what, what I'd like your listeners to understand is, it, well, first of all, when Cronkite teared up, it was like the perfect thing to do. He looked at the clock, he took off his glasses, he wiped his eyes, and, uh, and you know, it, it, beca- it becomes an indelible moment. You know, we all say, oh, I remember the Kennedy assassination. Uh, well, we remember Cronkite telling us about the Kennedy assassination. Um, but more to the point, that wasn't just that day. He stayed on marathon for day after day after day. Um, tell, you know, who, who is Lee Harvey Oswald? Who is Ruby? You know, where is Jackie Kennedy? Will, will the body be buried in Hyannis or Arlington? What world leaders are coming? On and on and on. It's hard to know what that is. Was he the healer? Was he our national mourner? Was he our rabbi, our Greek showman? He was, in the end, all of that. We're talking with Douglas Brinkley. He's historian, professor of history at Rice University, author of several books, the latest of which is titled Cronkite, a biography of Walter Cronkite, the great newsman. We appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thank you for having me. For uh, producers uh, Bennett Purser and Katie Swain, I'm uh, Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Commentator Richard Ratliff. I attended a meeting recently where the question was asked of a group of business people, what is your most important asset? The answer was immediate, our people. The answer is so universal that it has become a truism. Is an individual person's most important asset also people? If so, how would that work? I do not possess or even employ people as my personal asset. On the other hand, have you ever heard the statement, It is not what you know, but who you know. If I want something, all I have to do is make the right contact for my Rolodex. Hmm. What are other possible choices? I heard one high-level manager recently say, People may be most important, but nothing really happens without money. So money is another possible choice. And according to this manager, it runs a very close second. So people and money are possible choices. Other possibilities? Land, facilities and equipment, materials, supplies, expertise, time, information, they all are important. I'm adding one more candidate for consideration, healthy relationships. Some people and organizations seldom consider relationships as an asset to be managed. Rather, relationships happen. We manage the other assets. Truth is, nothing happens without relationships. Those various other resources have meaning and purpose only in the context of the business's relationships. Take away the relationships with customers, employees, suppliers, investors, and regulators, and, well, the business disappears. It serves no purpose to anyone. The relationships give it meaning and life. What is a business's most important asset? I believe that it is its relationship portfolio. A portfolio of healthy and productive relationships builds a successful business. A portfolio of troubled relationships will eventually sink the ship. If this is so, and relationships are indeed a business's most important asset, then it follows that a business manager's most important job is to cultivate and nurture healthy relationships and the relationship portfolio.
ask any troubled manager the source of his troubles, and it almost certainly will involve troubled relationships in one way or another. Find a happy manager, and you are almost certain to find a portfolio of healthy, happy relationships. I believe this is true for anyone in any organization. I believe it is true for you, our listeners. I believe it is true for mothers and fathers, political parties, diplomats, and accountants. I saw one organization transform itself after being threatened with closure. The same people, the same products, the same work processes, everything the same, except the organization learned how to improve its relationship portfolio. In six months' time, it progressed from dismal to stellar. Its better relationships gave renewed vigor and meaning to all of its other resources, including its people. Here's another point. People and organizations that have strong relationship portfolios not only have good relationships, they have a lot of them. Next time, I shall talk about why this is true. Where does this argument lead? We hear advice from financial experts to develop our financial investment portfolios by investing in strong, profitable enterprises. If my most important asset is my relationship portfolio, then it behooves me to invest my time and interest in strong, healthy relationships. And where I find myself in troubled ones, rather than feed the dragon, I must more wisely calm the waters. Consider the relationships. This is Richard Ratliff. Thanks for listening. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 